in this episode of Influencers, Corcoran Group founder, Barbara Corcoran. Well, I see the business as an extension of the person who runs it, short and simple. I see it on Shark Tank. So much money invested in things that make absolutely no sense. I get so much satisfaction out of helping my businesses that I've invested in. Not because I'm making money, although that helps a lot, I find, after a few years. <laughs> but I love seeing someone with a dream and thinking I'm part of getting them to that dream. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Barbara Corcoran, founder of the Corcoran Group, host of the podcast, Unusual Business, and Shark, an executive producer on ABC's Shark Tank. Barbara, welcome. Great to see you. Pleasure to be here with you. Thanks. So want to ask you a little bit about this economic environment. Mm -hmm. Inflation seems to be roaring back. And I'm wondering if, if people should really take this into account right now, an individual or a couple who are looking to make a big purchase, or should you try to time it and wait it out? Uh, you should move faster uh, because houses are only getting more expensive. Uh, it's harder to get your hands on something that you even find acceptable to live with, never mind something you've been dreaming about. Interest rates are still low, although they've been creeping up and they have promised to continue to go up. And so there's nothing to be gained by waiting whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. So if you weren't smart enough to get into the market two years ago, a year ago, the idea right now is get into it as fast as you can if you really want a home. And beyond the home front, I think it's probably the best market I have ever seen for real estate investing. I think the, uh, the return on investment is phenomenal and has been in so many markets in so many cities throughout the, throughout the U.S. that it's almost, I don't want to say it can't go wrong, but it's probably the best market I've ever seen in my life. So I think real estate is a champion. And I'm not saying that because that's my gig because I invest in a lot of stuff, but I'm saying it because I've never seen it more tantalizing and with more promise. Yeah, I want to pick up on that last point, which is real estate is an investment, not your home per se, but I guess you're talking about like a rental property or something like that. A rental property or a building with five or six units or 20 units. The numbers there, the returns people are getting are really surprising. And what, why is that exactly? So in other words, because there's such demand and the rates are still low enough to make your cost of capital still pretty good? A few reasons. One, there was a shyness in the market. Uh, people were slow to respond to investment real estate. Uh, now everybody's jumping into it, but it kind of lagged behind all other kinds of investments. So you had a little rest period. Secondly, um, the rents have been going up nationally. And if you choose your properties carefully, like if you're investing, say, in Orlando, uh, rents are up almost 30%. Crazy. Okay. So picture what that does to the bottom line. And very importantly, which we all take for granted, like our right to breathe, uh, money's so cheap. And so you can leverage really high. So so I, I even in New York City, which has gone through a really tough period because of all the changes. Albany that make it really almost untenable to make money here as an investor. A lot of people have stopped buying. They've moved their money elsewhere. And there are so many opportunities to buy and get very good returns because rents keep going up. Yeah, I want to drill down in some of those specific markets, Barbara. You mentioned Orlando is hot. New York is problematic. What are some other areas that are either hot or cold or things that are catching your eye? 
uh, well, I should have a chart in front of me because I keep a chart and I can't remember what order they are, but you have a Houston is a very vibrant market in rentals and prices on investment real estate is still not catching up to it from what I could see. Um, you see Pittsburgh is mind boggling. Uh, Pittsburgh is probably where I've really put more of my money in the last two years than anywhere else. And the reason for it is, is people didn't take it seriously. It's not considered a major city. Uh, but there's been so much technology that has moved in there. It's got the most educated population. It's got a friendly government that loves development. They have no rent restrictions or rent control. So it's almost like a cowboy land. You could really gallop out of the gate and make money right from the get-go. And that's exactly what I'm happy. I shouldn't even say it because I don't want any competition, but now everybody's discovering it. Uh, but the minor cities pretty much with, uh, I now forget which city just announced rent control. Boy, I backed out of that so fast. Uh, but most of the secondary cities are doing very, very well. You can almost get a dartboard, throw the dart there, be okay. Now, <laughs> well, Pittsburgh, you got the Steelers too. What about New York City, though, Barbara? I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, an extreme luxury market. Oh. What are the dynamics going on in here in the Big Apple? I am telling you that super duper luxury market uh, has totally changed, particularly over the last three months. If you're a really wealthy person and you want to make a statement and get a trophy property, uh, you'll be competing with a, a bunch of other giant egos with a fatter wallet than you have, right? Uh, the, the super luxury market, there's suddenly a shortage of listings. I never thought a, a year ago I would say that, uh, but there's overbidding uh, on new development sites. On the Upper East Side, there's one building that's going as a starting point, 20% <clears throat> over asked from the day it opened the door two months ago. It makes no sense. It was overpriced to begin with, and now it's going 20% over asked. The developers celebrating. Um, the luxury market, uh, I, I, I can't imagine it stopping. And the new developments, although I see cranes all over town, just can't keep up with the demand. That's but crazy. that's so, the top end. That's the top end. Yeah. You know, you have, what about the middle and everything else then? Well, the middle in New York today is get a three to $5 million apartment, your middle class, right? The middle market is a shortage of listings. If you're in a co-op, they don't sell nearly as well as if you have a condominium, uh, just because there's such a preference for the condo product over the co-op, particularly in the last two years. Don't know really why that's changed. And if you're looking for a small piece of therapy, a kid that's going to NYU, forget about it. You might as well just keep them at home and lock them up. It's just too damn expensive. Real estate prices on those units are going up like 20%. If you want to rent something, I know I own a lot of rental buildings in New York where I have a lot of those type of rich kids that parents guarantee the lease, which makes you feel really cozy at night. Uh, but those rents, uh, you, I mean, it's a bidding war in every single apartment, no matter how high you, you price it when it comes to market. And just uh, Hudson Yards doing okay? That thing's getting all filled up now? Uh, it's working on it. Uh, don't ask me about Hudson Yards because I don't want to do them any damage, but it's, it's not my cup of tea, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> it's a big project over there. Let's just a leave A big it. project over there. Yes. Right, exactly. Um, and, and what about the future, again, sort of broadening out nationally, Barbara? Uh, what have, what's in store? I mean, is it so just completely rate dependent? Uh, it's rate helped. Uh, if interest rates, I forget how much they've gone up in since December, like what is it, three quarters of a point or thereabouts, I think. Um, it's it's helped by rate. Okay, at it's helped by cheap rates. If a rate, uh, if the rates go up by one point, you buy less house. You have to uh, cut your budget down a bit. While 
rent prices, pardon me, while house prices are skyrocketing at the same time. So it eliminates more buyers, but I'm not afraid of that. I almost hate to wish it, but it's almost like we need it. We need to calm it down, cool it off. But if rates go up by 2%, will the bottom fall out of the market? Will houses not sell? No, because it's such a shortage. But does it make fewer buyers compete for those houses? Most definitely. And so rates, uh, are, rates are always in partnership with real estate. I mean, that's like the foundation of real estate. Can I borrow the money cheap? Well, it doesn't sound like you're that scared of Jay Powell then, right? No, I'm not so, I'm not so scared. <laughs> All right. Shifting gears a little bit. Crypto, Bitcoin. I think you said it would be perfect for real estate transactions. Why do you think that is? And you really think that could be a routine way for people to pay for real estate? You know, there's a lot of money passed under the table on high-end real estate that people don't know about. You know, what you see as a sales record is sometimes not very, sometimes just not really what really, really transacted. And that's very clumsy to do and difficult to do. I know cryptocurrencies, because of because of the nature of what they are, people would feel comfortable. It would help high-end real estate particularly. Uh, so I think, I don't see why not. It's efficient. Uh, people believe in it. People are trusting it. And uh, I just don't see why that wouldn't become, not the norm by any means for the average person, but a big piece of the real estate market. Yeah, I do. Have you guys seen any of that yet actually in your business? Uh, we have seen three apartments trade that I know of. This is probably much more than I know. Of. We've seen three apartments trade in the last two years with cryptocurrency. Wow. All right. It's coming. Okay. And then how about even beyond that, Barbara? I'm talking about the metaverse. Okay. Uh, and real estate. So I think you said on Yahoo Finance last month that the real estate deals in the metaverse have hype, have reality, <clears throat> but it could be an opportunity. What do you think the likelihood that a metaverse real estate investment would pay off down the line? Uh, I think, uh, and you know, this is all guesswork. Even people who claim they know what they're doing, I don't believe and everybody's just guessing. But if you want to want to add my guesses to the pile, I think the greatest potential in the real estate space in the metaverse certainly is retail and commercial. Uh, retail, uh, because uh, it's being halfway done already, uh, that some of these uh, high-priced brands like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, are selling virtual clothing as NFTs, and there's a large appetite for it. They're buying. So, of course, we need the bridge uh, between the actual clothing that I could see with when I go to their little, their little mall, I could hold a purse in my hand and I could buy it, actually order it. That's not far away. So assuming that really happens, that marries, and I don't see why it wouldn't really. Um, I think retail uh, could be the best thing that ever that metaverse could be the best thing that ever happened to retail. I must say so. I also think that the ability to meet with the people that work with you or people ability to meet with anyone in the metaverse uh, makes the commercial sector very juicy. I really believe that people will do more business in the metaverse in terms of meeting up. And so that makes commercial space very valuable. Uh, I think the question that has to be answered is what makes one space more valuable than the other and why would I pay that and not that? And that's, I think that's going to all come out in the wash over the next couple of years. Uh, certainly, I know it's an odd example, but with Snoop Dogg offering parcels right next door to his house, uh, I took that very seriously. 
because suddenly there was a differentiation between one lot and another that someone was willing to pay so much to be next to a celebrity. Now with a celebrity, they're gonna do concerts and entertainment. That's a natural for the metaverse. So you might say, well, that's not true of all real estate, but there's a proof of concept that people will bid high and pay a lot of money to be near something else. And that's what real estate is like in our universe. So I see that as filled with potential, that one example. I don't put much credence in the fact that uh, Morgan Guarantee now has, uh, what do they have, the lounge thing? I just see that as extension of their, their uh, chimneys, uh, the, the, uh, the ego there, because you get to see a real live tiger when you walk through his space, and then you see a great portrait of the head of the bank. Wow, I really want to buy next to that. Okay, but that's just, a, I think that's just stealing the headlines and <laughs> good PR stunt, you know? But I do pay attention to Snoop Dogg most seriously because that is proof of concept. All right, so Snoop Dogg thumbs up, portrait of Jamie Dimon, maybe not so yeah. much. And, and have you done any transactions, real estate transactions in the metaverse yet yourself? What I've done is I've uh, put in a bid <laughs> on the, well, I shouldn't really tell you, but I, I think I have it, so I'll take the chance on the uh, zoo here in Central Park, because I would always love to own a zoo and I can't afford one, so I'm buying that. And I'm also buying the building where I live, which is on Fifth Avenue, because I wanna simply brag to my neighbors that, hey, I own your apartment in the metaverse. You know, it's just an ego thing and a lot of fun. So those two so far is what I've been buying, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you think about that. Could I own Steve Schwarzman's house out in the Hamptons if he had, I don't know if he has one, but like, could I buy someone else's house? I wonder, right? Yes, yes you can. Remember, it's new real estate. Right. Oh my goodness. I mean, that just, it boggles the mind. I'm going to get the White House, Buckingham Palace, right? Why not? And if you build a house there, you can invite your friends over as long as they're willing to wear those massive things on their head. Yeah, yes, the Oculus. Okay. Well, you don't have to you don't have to give them anything to drink. Yes, yes, it's own sort of high as as it were. Um, hey, let me let me ask you a little bit about VC and venture capital investing because it's just been incredible during the past two years during the pandemic. How do you explain that, Barbara? I don't explain it. You probably know a lot more about it than I do, but what I do know is that the deals are bigger and bigger. Uh, there's more late stage deals by a lot. I think there was 17, 18 rounds raising a billion or more. We've never seen that. I think it's doubled in the last year. Again, um, approximating these things, but um, it's really not a business I know much about. What I know about is the mini version of that, which I experience as a uh, investor on Shark Tank. In a way, we're venture capitalists. We sit there uh, but this, and, and examine businesses and decide where to put our money. But what we always have is more consumer goods. We see very little uh, new tech tools simply because it's lousy TV. Talk about a tech tool for a half hour on a set and everybody's falling asleep. Talk about the new pizzeria or the new, uh, the new, new anything that's gadgety for a kitchen. Everybody's paying attention at home. And so we see the mini versions of it. Uh, but uh, can I tell you, I think there is so much, I see it on Shark Tank so much money invested in things that make absolutely no sense. And I think on a larger scale, I'm waiting for uh, a lot of this to wash out. There's so much money being thrown and spent by so many companies. And I think only a uh, percentage of those companies really merit that spend and will really make a go of it. I'm yeah. just 
quite baffled by it. I'm a little nervous about that, but that's your belly work. You can worry about that. I'm well, there's a lot of money sloshing around right now, as you suggest, Absolutely. Barbara. I think that's really what's driving it. And it's a good segue because I do want to ask you a couple of questions about, about Shark. So just starting out, what are the key factors that you're assessing when deciding whether a venture is worthwhile? Well, I see the business as an extension of the person who runs it, short and simple. If I uh, assess uh, an individual as being very capable, even with a bad idea, I always go into the deal and I usually make money because they find a way to make money. They'll find a way to twist it around, uh, deliver differently. They'll all totally go into a different business and I'm in there for the ride. So the extent I pay attention to the person, the person is the key in a small business. Uh, so far as what do I look for in the person? I guess I'm really looking for the same traits all the time. One, I want somebody who looks the part. If somebody loves baking, they better not come in a three-piece suit. I need to trust them intuitively uh, that what they're saying is the truth. And I like a person who says, I don't know, but I'll find out. I think we all like that. And probably as a one personality trait, I put more emphasis on than anything else. I'm looking for someone who has come through some kind of adversity. If I could get an entrepreneur uh, leading any kind of a business who uh, had a father who damned him to hell, uh, couldn't read in school, um, really had terrible things happen early on in their life, and they're standing in front of me, believing that they could build a business, I always make money on those people. They try twice as hard. So I like investing in previous losers that have the passion to become a winner and really know how to get back up, get back up and do it again, get back up. Because that in the end, when I look at the hundreds some odd businesses I've invested over the time I've sat in my seat, I can tell you uh, the difference between the ones that have done well and not is the ability to get back up. Not just as an extra, but the ability to really just not blame it on the next guy. Uh, not spend more than a second feeling sorry for yourself and getting back up and doing it all over again. So that's what I'm really doing. I'm people shopping. And it's interesting because, you know, it has helped me tremendously. When I built the Corcoran Group, my major talent was choosing potentially good salespeople. And those are exactly the traits that make great salespeople. Exactly the same thing. So I just continue to, I pretend I'm still choosing salespeople for the Corcoran Group. And when I stay, for, stay uh, loyal to that, I, I really don't make any bad investments. So it's gotten very easy through the years, I think, but it's a lot of fun. So even if I didn't make money, I think I'd be showing up in my seat every year anyway, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. And, and the characteristics, the personality traits, that's fascinating. And I, I guess I wanted to follow up and ask you, so is that different from what Mr. Wonderful looks for and what Mark Cuban looks for? You guys each look for different kinds of things? Well, I'll tell you, they have different priorities. Mark Cuban looks at anything that he could throw a ton of money at because he's got so much more money than us. I've learned in that show, there's a difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. A lot of difference, okay? So he just likes to laugh, bam, you want her bid for $50,000? I'll give you 500,000. I'm exaggerating, but he has a lot of money to spend. And what Mr. Wonderful does, I don't even know. It doesn't even make sense to me the way his mind works. But in the end, he winds up getting his hands on a few good businesses. And he's very good at promoting them. He's a wonderful promoter. Uh, that's his true gift, I believe, Kevin. Yeah. Right. What any big regrets from Shark Tank? Investing regrets, that is. Yeah, I regret the first two years I invested in Shark Tank because I was trying to figure out which businesses were good. In businesses that I had no knowledge of. I know real estate. That's it. But I was trying to figure out, ah, is this a good business? 
when I finally threw that away on year three, I started making the right choices by just focusing on the entrepreneur. It made it all so simple. So I wasted two good years and trying to be who I wasn't. I wasted those two years feeling insecure and second guessing myself. It wasn't any fun. It's only when you're comfortable in your space and you trust in yourself, do you start to have fun. So yeah, I'd rewind and uh, get rid of those first two years the way I was managing them. <laughs> right. Hey, do you ever invest in the stock market and in equities? And if so, or maybe even not, if so, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you think about, about you know stuff? I, I do not. And let me tell you why I don't, because I like to know what I'm doing. I love control. I invest in real estate. I could smell it. I could feel it. I know what I'm doing and I make money. Now, any financial advisor that I've ever talked to said it's not wise to have all my equity in real estate, real estate of this kind, that kind. I listen, and I'm sure they're right in theory, but in actuality, <laughs> they're not right for me. I'm right for me. I know how to do that well, and so I stick with my knitting. Let me ask you about celebrity CEOs. And, well, Barbara, you might kind of be one, but I'm, I'm really talking about, well, I'm talking about you, I guess, a little bit, but Elon Musk and his tweeting and Warren Buffett and Zuckerberg are celebrity CEOs good for business? And what can be learned from, from different models of being a, a high profile person like that? Depends who you're talking about now, doesn't it? Elon, you mentioned him. Uh, he doesn't want people to pay uh, as much attention to his tweets and what's he tweeting for? Of course he does, okay? Uh, his personal tweets control the value of his business. His personal demeanor, and the way he looks and acts and says, kind of a little bit of a wild man, right? Uh, people love him. People love him. If you could get your audience to love you, your stock does better. It's as simple as that. What a great uh, high-profile CEO does for a firm is they, A, get attention, which is very important, especially when the business is young, and B, they get the right attention if it's a love affair. And people will buy with their heart and justify with their head in that order. I believe in anything. I've learned that in my years in business. So people will buy into him and they'll justify that that stock's going to be amazing. And guess what? They're right. Because if enough people feel that way, the stock keeps rising. Take a Mark Zuckerberg by comparison. Okay. Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, is, I always pronounce his name wrong. Mark Zuckerberg. Somebody's got to tell me how to pronounce his name. Zuckerberg. One, give it to me again. My office does this all day long. What is it? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah, Zuckerberg. Didn't, uh -huh. Isn't that what I just said? Kind of. <laughs> okay. He's smart. And people respond to him like, wow, he was young, so smart, so rich. But unfortunately, he's also snaky and robotic. And so people don't trust him or like him. Isn't that sad? I don't know if he's trustworthy. I don't know. I don't know a thing about that piece of him. But I can tell you something, does that work against his value for his business? Yes, it does. It really does because it's not likable. All right, take somebody like Jeff Bezos. You know what I thought when I saw that he lost all that weight and must have had a great personal trainer looking buff and got himself a young wife? I thought to myself, good for his stock. <laughs> Maybe not, but he looks like a guy who looks like a winner when I see him in the pages of the papers, you see? So I don't think you can underestimate the power that a celebrity head can bring to a firm or the damage it could do when it's the wrong messaging. Uh, but I think today it's almost essential. 
I don't think it's an extra. You know, there was a time when we didn't elect celebrities uh, for the highest office in our country, but we have found recently that that's a pretty darn good calling card. You know, uh, same with business. I think things have changed. It's all about marketing, branding, and uh, who puts a face on a brand better than the face. Right. It's essential. I want to ask you a little bit about, well, I guess maybe inequality in our economy and whether or not the deck is stacked increasingly against a little guy in terms of people wanting to start businesses. Tech is so big, rich people are getting richer. Mm -hmm. Is it that much harder now, Barbara, for someone to start a small business? I don't believe it's harder for someone to start a small business, uh, harder to maybe to get uh, the hands on the money, but that's always been hard. And the great majority of the small business start in America don't borrow money. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they work it off, so to speak, like I did, like so many small businesses did. Um, but is there an inequality, which is your larger question across the board? Of course there is. I've never seen a less balanced America than, than we're seeing right now. Uh, does a little guy have the same shot they had 10 years ago for anything? No. I mean, do they even have the same shot versus a year ago? No, with inflation doing what it's doing. They get a 3% raise and then inflation goes up by 5% so their money buys less to feed their family. I mean, they re the, the lower price the worker in America, the shorter into the stick and the shorter the stick gets. I, I re And for the wealthier people in America, everybody I know seems to be making money. I mean, everyone I know who owns businesses through COVID made more money. I really mean it. I have many very well-heeled friends and they were complaining all the way to the bank. Uh, but that's not true of the people, the moms that were staying at home, minding their kids and gave up the second income because the kids couldn't go to school. There is such a breach between the rich and the poor in America, it frightens me. I think about it a lot. Uh, I, I should have a solution, I do not at all. But I think about it a lot. I think it's very troubling. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any ideas. I mean, one thing is obviously higher taxes, and everyone's all up in arms about that. But it is a it's a difficult problem to solve, right? I if if it wasn't, it would have been solved a while ago. Certainly, people are concerned about it. I've talked about it a heck of a long time, as long as I can remember talking myself. Uh, right. It's a difficult problem to solve. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about you, Barbara. You grew up in New Jersey. I think you were the second oldest in a family of 10 siblings. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a good position actually in a family. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about that. You talked about the competition for attention from your parents. How do you think that experience formed you? Oh, it totally formed me. In my family, most of the kids are all entrepreneurs. Uh, they, they are entrepreneurs for one reason. My father was a working man, worked two jobs his whole life and came home and told us how much he hated his boss and quit and got fired and quit and got fired. Uh, we all grew up not consciously thinking we want to be in charge of ourselves, but we are. Uh, that was very important. In terms of getting attention, I'm very good at marketing. That comes from being one of 10. I know it. I had to learn how to speak up, interrupt, <laughs> and be faster on my feet than the other nine if I was to get my mother's attention because it was spread among 10 kids or my dad's attention. So when you're in a big family, you know how to get attention. You also know how to compete. 
Uh, but the greatest thing, and I, I'm, I'm not stereotyping about all large families, but large families that are led by loving, powerful parents, those kids, they're the luckiest kids in the world. Because you know what it's like, really? It's like growing up in a small town. It doesn't feel like a family. Everybody's got a role. Everybody has a gift. Everybody's demonstrating their gift. Uh, you don't get a free ride, you're not helped out, but along the way you get the confidence that you find and will do well in life. So we all walked out of that household at 18. None of us were worried about doing well for ourselves. It was embedded in our DNA by our parents who believed we could. And we were well equipped with the various traits we had developed. Being in that large family with no money to go around and helping out, we all had jobs. I had 22 jobs before I started my real estate business. All of us worked from the time we were 11 part-time jobs, babysitting, uh, you know, at the kiddie pool, whatever we could get our hands on because we contributed to the household. So we were well-equipped for living in a right. real yeah. And you, you began the real estate career in your 20s. You sold it, I think, for what, $66 million in 2001. Yes. What's the, what was the key to building that business, Barbara? Talent. Uh, talent, uh, choosing the right people because you have to remember when you have any young business no one wants to work for you and you don't have the means to buy people you have to hustle somehow <laughs> to get some willing souls to come work for you and so hiring the right people and then the second part is developing their loyalty so they love you and that's an easy easy formula you just love them really hard and they love you back it's automatic uh, that's how you build a business I mean that was really my great talent is the right people and uh, knowing how to build a team for sure and getting them so that they would like jump off a cliff for me and they would because I would have jumped off a cliff for them and so it was a mutual love affair uh, that's what built the company in later years I was able to build the company much faster because I realized I had a gift for marketing I could make something small look very big and get everybody to write about it. <laughs> That's the bullshit factor that you learn in a large family going back to that, because you have to be very entertaining to get attention. <laughs> but uh, those are really the only two gifts I had, uh, but I was able to choose all the right people around me that had all the other uh, many things that I needed to build a big business, you know, and I always had the right people. And finally, Barbara, I mean, today you co-host the TV show, the podcast speeches, you do some endorsements, you have all manner of projects. What is it that you consider important right now in your life? And then even looking ahead, your legacy going forward. Well, I don't care about legacy because I'll be dead. So what do I care about? Um, but so far as what's important, I think uh, pretty much what winds up being important to all of us, I just really want to make a difference. However I do it, I feel like I make a difference talking to the individual people that call in an 888 Barbara. I think I'm really good at giving advice because I can size up the situation, the person, and give them the right advice. And so I do very well with my Business Unusual podcast, simply because people recognize it as valuable. And I feel really, really good about it. I get so much satisfaction out of helping my businesses that I've invested in, not because I'm making money, although that helps a lot, I find after a few years, <laughs> but I love seeing someone with a dream and thinking I'm part of getting them to that dream. It's like being fairy godmother. How many people get to play that in life, right? And so that is again, another form of helping someone, you know? So anything that I feel like I help someone, I seem to make money on right away. And I, I seem to uh, get a, 
a lot of love back. So I feel very fulfilled and uh, not empty handed as I get older and older, closer to that grave. <laughs> All right. That is the one and only Barbara Corcoran. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Nice hanging out with you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.